Hello and welcome everybody to, according to Andrew number 81, my review of Debunking Ep Economics by Steve Keen. Uh, this is an absolutely great book. I really enjoyed it and I thoroughly recommend it. If you want the short review, um, if you're interested in economics, uh, I definitely think you should read this book. Um, so there you go. So there, there's my review. Just kidding. Um, there's a lot in this book. It's aspects of it are dense and, and things like that. So I wanted to kind of give you some of the good, some of the bad, what you're going to potentially get out of it, what you're not, uh, so that you know whether or not it's something that you want to look into. Um, if you are skeptical of the mainstream uh, neoclassical view of economics and think that there's something to it, but you don't know how to articulate it or you don't know uh, why it's wrong, this is a great book to read. Um, and so I wanted to give you, first we're going to go into some of the very interesting things that I thought about the book, and then I'll kind of give my uh, pros and cons about the book, and uh, then we'll we'll wrap it up. <clears throat> so the uh, do, 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 do. so the things that I got out of the book. So one of the very uh, first things that I thought was really interesting that stood out was the way that he modeled the economy. So typically, um, the way that we model the economy, or uh, the way like the Marxian view of the world is you have your capitalists and you have your workers. And then obviously Marx goes through his whole thing of how the workers are going to unite against the capitalists and overthrow them and stuff like that. Uh, but Keen makes a very uh, poignant observation that and articulates something that um, put, put into words something that we kind of knew. Uh, and it, it really helps better frame uh, the argument and the understanding of how the economy actually works. So he says there's actually three classes. There isn't just workers and capitalists. There's workers, capitalists, and bankers. And it's a very key distinction um, because this is one of the things that kind of muddied up uh, Occupy Wall Street uh, movement. If you guys listen to uh, Tim Cass' uh, podcast at all, uh, you know, he talks about a lot uh, how the Occupy Wall Street kind of got hung up. And you also see some stuff when you're, you look back at some of the things where uh, you know, they're complaining about the 1%, and then you get some people muddying in there going, oh, well, do you think uh, that the 1%, uh, like, you know, this this doctor that worked really hard and now is like, a, you know, has a couple million dollars, he's part of the 1%, do you think that guy's a problem? And obviously nobody at the Occupy uh, movement was really going after those guys. Maybe some of them were, but in general, those are not the people that targeted targeting. They, they were targeting specifically bankers and, and Wall Street. It was called Occupy Wall Street for kind of love. But this is a tactic used to muddy the water and, and make it so that uh, you kind of created divisions within the, the movement and then broke the whole thing apart. Uh, and so um, it, was, it was a very effective tool. So basically uh, by subdividing from... Uh, your workers, your capitalists, and your bankers, you no longer have to say 1%. You can say the bankers and their cronies in the finance industry who uh, basically collapsed the entire economy and then got a payday. And so this better precision of language is really helpful. So if anything like this Occupy Wall Street type movement happens again, there's a way in which uh, economics and stuff like that can be talked about in a way that frames uh, the people who made the mistakes and, and are responsible for the current state of affairs for the the responsibility and the blame to be laid at the feet of the correct people and no more of this money in the water of, oh, well, do you mean a doctor? Do you mean an entrepreneur? Do you mean a farmer? It's like, no, obviously we don't mean those people. We mean the bankers who created a Ponzi scheme of debt, collapsed the entire system, or take control of literally everything, and now expect us to just go along with it. 
Um, do, 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 do. Let me make sure I didn't miss anything there. Oh, and then obviously we're in the middle of a current collapse. Um, also, uh, the way that he kind of constructed this theory and this uh, form of analysis was very uh, interesting and insightful. Um, so this form of analysis also makes it a great foundation for the theory crafting uh, of other forms of economic structures, like by replacing the banking class with an investor class, and instead of giving out loans, uh, have that uh, have that be invested instead. This removes the zero-risk Ponzi scheme of the banking sector with debt, and the share uh, the risk is shared with the investment firm. Uh, this may cause similar business cycles to the banking sector, but it is an area that I think is worth exploring more in depth. Uh, there are certain there are certain questions. Oh, uh, so there's, I, he had this interesting way of framing, uh, what is it? How an economy works where you basically, you have your, your rows of transaction or yeah, you have rows of transactions and then you have, uh, your, your groups as well. And so it, it made a really clear, basically graphical outline of how you can model the economy. And so I think, uh, diving into more of that kind of scene, uh, can you, can you re restructure this where it's not bankers that are getting the stuff? Because, uh, you know, capital expenses are large. You need to pool money from probably a lot of different groups to be able to purchase these large capital goods. So how can you do that for average people and make it so that, um, what's it called? So that, you know, business can get the uh, concentration of money it needs up front so that it can get the payoff in the long run kind of thing. Uh, and how do you keep keep money flowing and stuff like that through the system. Uh, speaking of money flowing through the system, he also highlighted something called the money multiplier effect or another term, uh, the velocity of money. He says they're technically different, but I've, for general thinking, they're pretty much the same. Uh, and he had a, a really good way of uh, demonstrating how uh, the money supply is actually about four to five times larger than the actual... Um, oh, what's the term for it? Uh, then the actual amount of money in the system, because the reason, the reason for that is as people are exchanging goods and stuff like that, basically workers get paid, they spend most of that money, that thing goes to pay another person's uh, wages and things like that. And so the economy kind of continues to spin. Uh, it makes it so that the actual amount of money, uh, circulating is more akin to, uh, you know, maybe four or five times the the current, the actual amount of money in the system, which is rather kind of interesting. Uh, it's I, another similar way to think about that is uh, hotbeds on a, on a ship, right? So, or hot bunks on a ship. So on a lot of uh, military ships, what they'll do is they basically have two crews. They have a night crew and a morning crew. And instead of having a bunk for everybody, they have that one bunk that the morning crew sleeps in during the night and then the night crew sleeps in during the morning. And basically when they switch shifts is when they, they switch bunks. So you, you basically cut down on the amount of bunks that you need by half. And this is kind of how this works. Uh, another similar thing of how this works is also kind of how, why they do fractional reserve banking, which is not a good thing. Um, but that this is one of the ways that they kind of get away with, uh, that. So do to do, do make sure. Oh, so the big thing about this is there with this money velocity effect it 
he did a good example. He had a good example in there, which really showed that the uh, debt deflation is much more of a destructive force than I had initially anticipated and factored for. So when I think about debt deflation, I was just thinking about it in the normal sense of without the money multiplier effect, where uh, you take the money that's currently, like, let's say there's $100 in circulation, and you take uh, $1 of that, and you pay off a dollar of your loan, and now there's only $99 to pay back however much that loan costs. So now the more you have to pay back, um, the more uh, the loan costs, and you're removing money from the circulation, and that's a problem. But it's actually more than that, because taking $1 out of circulation could actually be the equivalent of taking $4 out of circulation. Um, and in relative terms, that might be, like, if you're taking, it still might be just a 1% shrinking of the money supply. But when you get to uh, how large our overall economy is and stuff like that, uh, sometimes 1% can be a massive swing. Uh, I know if they, uh, was it? Vox Day's book, Return of the Great Depression, he has a good section in there where he discusses like, oh, you know, they were only off on the GDP thing by uh, like two or three percent or something like that. But it's like, but the numbers are so huge that it's like five hundred billion dollars worth of uh, uh, that the GDP was off by. And five hundred billion dollars is like entire industries worth of of revenue that was just supposedly there, but wasn't. And so these these small effects can actually be much larger in magnitude than I originally thought. And so I think this is one of the things that really causes the nosedive of the debt deflation um, even harder than it would normally, uh, than I had normally perceived it initially. Uh, <clears throat> one thing to also potentially consider is this, this more rapid shrinking of the money supply could kind of leave uh, firms, and I think he does talk about this as well. The, when he touches on debt, I really like the sections where he touched on debt in here, um, because it's not something that's talked about in most economic books. Uh, so it was nice to kind of um, have that be discussed, and I thought he had some great points on it. Uh, makes reference to Michael Hudson's book, um, and forgive them their debts, which I have read and it is fantastic. I also recommend. Um, but you know you could. As you have this debt deflation, you have this constriction of not only just the pure, the raw money supply, but the circulating uh, money supply, the money multiplier effect, and that could uh, make it so that firms that were on solid footing all of a sudden uh, and don't have any debt, don't have any stuff, uh, all of a sudden find themselves uh, financially insolvent. And so this is why the debt issue isn't just an individual firm issue of like, oh, well, this firm should have paid blah, 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 and should have done that. It's like, well, it... It doesn't just affect you. It affects everybody. If that one firm has too much debt, you're like that. Debt is now money that's in the economy that's being used to buy your products. And like, sure, it might be four or five steps removed or something like that. Maybe it's only one or two steps removed, but it's still helping buy your uh, products. And the instant that money starts getting paid back, all of a sudden your uh, business model is no longer profitable. And so that's why you see this massive contraction. On top of he also touched on uh, how a lot of the way that they get this debt-fueled speculation going on, it sets up the whole thing of, uh, what's it called? Of Ponzi scheme financing, where basically the whole, the entire business plan is that the economy will keep growing forever, and therefore you'll grow your way out of the current terrible, 
financial plan that you have. Uh, let's see. Twitter runs on this business model. Facebook runs on this business model. Patreon runs on this business model. Um, basically, all of Silicon Valley is this business model. Uh, I think Amazon was this business model, but I believe they are no longer... I think they're actually profitable now. Uh, Netflix is definitely this business model. Um, their entire thing is, well, as long as we're still growing, we're profitable, even though we're not profitable. And, like, eventually we're going to run out of people to... Um, recruit or whatever but we're just gonna ignore that fact and and pretend like everything is okay so it's uh it's pretty ridiculous but um yeah he also referenced Irvin fisher which i want to do a lot more reading on this guy because he has this great point on debt deflation that i think uh, not a lot of people know about and i think is a very solid point uh, let's see if i can find him in here uh he, let's see, I must not have marked this. Makes me sad. Um, do do second here. Yeah. Um. Anyway. So basically, he has a way of describing debt deflation that does a really good job of highlighting how, uh, as one thing starts, then the next thing goes down, and and it spirals. Uh, and like I had mentioned earlier, it is much more destructive than I had initially anticipated just because of that uh, money multiplier effect. Uh, one thing that is interesting that I think, um, talking about the modeling the economy without uh, debt is that money multiplier effect. So generally what happens when the economy goes and crashes is they act like it's all uh, normal people's fault and not uh, the bankers who literally created the problem. And so economists will say things like, oh, well, we have a savings glut. Meanwhile, literally no savings in anybody's bank account. And we need to spend more. And so what that actually means is uh, the slaves need to get into more debt is basically their conclusion. And the at a certain point, like, that's just not possible. Like, you're like, I, I can't pay this back and I'm not going to take any more debt. Um, but there are some that are, just ignore that. Anyway, something that could cause a savings glut and a economic slowdown is a money a money system without debt. Because as people uh, earn more money and save that money and suck it in, depending on um, how many people are saving at any one given time, it could make it so that the amount of money that's in circulation gets constricted to the point that all of a sudden uh, there isn't enough money to flow through the system and then you start having business failures and then it has a, a knock-on effect that causes uh, um, depression. I don't know if that's actually how it's going to work, but it's something that needs to be investigated and I think would be uh, interesting. And that is maybe where there would be a savings cut issue. Now, I think the thing that would basically a self-correcting thing is um, if a lot of people had a lot of savings and the reason they had a lot of savings because they were trying to save up for a big uh, purchase like a house or something like that. House is the big one. Um, when that slowdown starts to happen and prices start to fall and maybe the businesses kind of start to, to collapse and stuff like that, uh, some of the prices might become better in those markets that people were looking to buy houses in, and all of a sudden they start buying houses because now all of a sudden they fell within their price range uh, because they can't get debt to, to make the purchase. All of a sudden the prices fell to where they could make the purchase. They make the purchase, that money gets back into the economy, and, and we're off again. Uh, it might not. It's kind of a toss-up. Uh, it needs more investigation. But... Uh, anyway, back to our uh, point, back to kind of that. Um, so on a similar note, uh, that the explanation of why the banking bailout in 2008 did not help the economy. So Steve 
has a amazing uh, Dr. Keen. I don't know how, how he prefers to be uh, referred to. Anyway, um, he has a great explanation for why pumping all that money into banks doesn't work. And I had all the little pieces for it, but uh, uh, Steve Keen really kind of took all those pieces and put them together uh, for me. There's a documentary, or not a documentary, but there's a great informative um, video called Money as Debt. And I think that is a very interesting uh, video. It came back out back in 2008, 2009 when this economic collapse was uh, happening. I watched it in high school and I thought it was very interesting. This is one of the things that inspired me and got me interested in economics was watching this and understanding how the banking system worked. And I was like, what? This can't be real. Um, it, it just kind of blew my mind uh, that that's, that's how our economic system works. Uh, and it's, it's very new like haven't haven't seen these topics before uh friendly so if you're not familiar with these things i highly recommend uh watching it you can just look it up under uh money as debt uh and it'll it'll pop up um under youtube i will also link it in the description for those that are interested in watching it there is a part one to part two uh part two just kind of goes a little bit more in depth a little bit more granular uh, you really only need to watch part one if you're just kind of uh passively curious if you if you're hooked I definitely recommend uh, watching part two. There's also a part three, supposedly, but I haven't watched that one, so um, I'm not so sure of what that is or what that is about. Anyway, back to the point. Um, so the the main point that I kind of uh, forgot, missed, whatever, is that the creation of money via debt uh, precedes the reserve requirements. Uh, the way the system is supposed to work is that banks uh, have a reserve on hand via deposits and savings accounts to their customer. Then they, they then loan that out to somebody that is seeking capital. And then that person takes that, makes that capital purchase with it. Um, and this is one of the ways that they can inflate the money supply is then uh, whoever, they, they took somebody's money, they said, you, you're $1,000. I take $1,000, put it in the bank, put it in a savings account. Now they act like I still have that money. I can withdraw it whenever I want. Um, they then take, let's say, um, uh, $900 worth of that, give that as a loan. That person takes that $900, gives it to somebody else uh, for exchange for goods. That person then takes that $900 that they just received, puts it into a bank account. They take that $900, take uh, 90% of it, which is uh, 890 880 whatever it is, um, takes that, loans that out again to somebody. They take it, uh, buy the thing. That person puts the money back in the bank. They loan out that another 10% of that, and they just keep doing that until they basically have inflated that initial $1,000 to, I believe it goes, you can inflate it to $100,000 from an initial, or maybe it's $10,000. It's, uh, it's ridiculous how much extra money they basically generate through this Ponzi scheme of continually loaning out the exact same money. So that's an issue, obviously. Um, but they don't even need the reserves. What they actually, how the system actually works with the Federal Reserve is they say, uh, do you want a loan? Somebody comes in, hey, I need a loan for uh, a car, uh, this truck or whatever. They're like, how much do you need? They're like $100,000. All right, here's the loan for the $100,000. Now they have to go find, and they're like, oh, well, we don't have the reserves to meet that requirement that's required of us to have in the bank, which is pitifully low. Um, Vox did a calculation in his uh, debunking, not debunking, uh, the Return of the Great Depression book, and the amount of reserves that's actually required of these banks is like three quarters of a penny per dollar loaned. 
it's it's unbelievable. Anyway, uh, they don't have the money, so what they do is they go to the uh, federal bank and they're like, "Hey, uh, we need the reserve requirements to make it so that we don't crash the economy." And they're like, "Well, you need to get it through normal means." It's like, "Well, we didn't, and if you don't, the economy's gonna crash." And the the Fed basically they basically have them in like a catch twenty two where it's like, really they need to just reform it. But anyway, the then the Federal Reserve pumps that money into them, and then they have, they meet the reserve requirements. So what happens when they give all of this... Uh, so the way the money is created is that other people take on debt and take on loans and stuff like that. Since uh, So giving uh, money to bankers doesn't actually increase the money supply because if, if they have extra money, they never needed the money to loan out in the first place. So having extra money just makes it so that they... Uh, hold greater reserves because they generally just kind of do that out of a, a natural fear going back to the uh what you call it um the panics and the, the runs in the bank but basically everything's virtual nowadays so it shouldn't really be a problem but um it's kind of kind of goes back to some of that thinking and then uh you know if nobody's take like basically everybody's loaded up on debt to the to their eyeballs to the point that they can't take on any more debt. So giving them uh, money doesn't actually do anything because they need people to come in and take out debt to be able to generate this money and get it out of uh, uh, get it out of business or get it get the economy out of the rut that it's in. So because everyone's so indebted, they can't do it and they don't need the reserves because they can just create the money out of thin air. So if you do the reverse where you give businesses the loans. Uh, or basically just write off their debt or give them give them cash. They can either uh, pay the, the debts off that they have, which is probably what some of them are going to do. That does actually shrink the money money supply, but that money was um, just kind of printed out of thin air anyway, so uh, it doesn't actually have any effect on the money supply. It just goes uh, right back into the pocket of the person that printed it, basically. Um, then the other thing that they can do is they can... Uh, but even even so, like let's say they pay off their debts. Now that they can, they've paid off their debts, they can now look at making capital expenses again that make it so that they can start growing their business and stuff like that. And so that kickstarts the generation of money again, and you can get business up and rolling and uh, restart the economy. So that's why giving money to the people and stuff like that is much better. And that's kind of what we're seeing in this current recession with uh, the bailouts. Now they still bailed out the banks. They gave all the they did give business bailouts, but it was, like, for crony reasons, uh, which isn't good. Uh, though they did give the average guy some some bailouts with the PPP loans and things like that. Uh, so that might be one of the reasons we don't see as big of a uh, slump right now. But once people start paying back their debts and stuff like that, I think they're going to have to do a lot of money printing to, or just debt write-offs to prevent the entire economy from basically spiraling into a debt deflation that we can't get out of. Um, so that was very interesting. Um, so getting into, uh, the specifics of the book and not just kind of things I pulled from it and found very interesting. Uh, so the, the primary goal of the book is to attack the current way of the, the dominant form of economic thinking that is taught at colleges today. And that is neoclassical uh, economics. So this book does an utter thrashing of neoclassical classical economics, uh, which is the dominant school of thought today. One of the first things uh, that Keen te tears into is the supply and demand curve. 
uh, which shows that both supply and demand are not upward and downward sloping uh, curves. So let's, this guy. So this is a supply-demand curve. I, it's a JPEG, so all of the, uh, the lines, XY lines are, are blurred out. But um, you have uh, supply in the blue and you have demand in the red. Or wait, I think I screwed that up. Um, you have supply in the red and you have uh, demand in the blue. And basically where they intersect is where their price is supposed to be. This is not how it works. That only works in... Uh, very specific circumstances that they set up to make it uh, work. So <clears throat> uh, the situations that they need, uh, the only time this model, the this very familiar model is applicable is when there is one customer and one commodity. And Keen does an excellent job of showing that what is true in the, at the individual level is not true in the aggregate. So it that only exists if there's one commodity and one commodity. Uh, person that is looking to buy stuff which is not how the economy works um and so he showed um that demand curves can have all sorts of uh increasing and incre decreasing uh fluctuations as people's uh, money and income uh increases the uh, big thing that neoclassical people and we'll get into this a little bit more later don't model is they don't model dynamic systems they just basically take a screenshot of the system that of how it currently works and extrapolate how things work when uh, goods are changing hands and a lot of a lot of things are changing. Uh, people are doing a lot of moving. There's a lot of moving parts going on within the system. They think if you can, you basically take a freeze frame of that, uh, you can extrapolate all of the, what's going to happen in this complex moving web of uh, people from a freeze frame static image of the whole thing, which is just not true. Um, so. The big thing with why demand is that way is you have a lot of different things. So as your income increases, um, things like a good example he uses, uh, your consumption of beans is probably going to go down, but your consumption of things like steak and meat is probably going to go up because now that you don't need more food, so there's no reason to get more of the food. What instead you do is you have a certain amount of money that you're okay with spending, a percentage of your income you're okay with spending on food, and as your your monetary uh life increases generally people uh increase their standard of living as they increase their uh wealth they basically as they increase the amount that they spend they or they increase the amount they make they increase the amount they spend is generally how it works so um instead of buying beans they buy steak and uh they buy relatively the same amount of food but they just buy higher quality things or more luxury type goods and so you see this kind of changing uh, dynamic throughout the this, this system where supply and demand are wildly can have tons of different shapes and and stuff like that all the time uh oh one thing i forgot to write down that is interesting when it's talk about the supply uh is the the economists assume that supply intersects demand where uh, marginal cost equals marginal revenue so basically um where you can basically barely make a profit and because in a super competitive industry, you're going to be forced to basically have zero margins. Uh, but that isn't generally how um, products work. And products do go out of their way to basically create, I'm not going to say false monopolies, but uh, brand, we'll call them, they use branding to effectively create a monopoly where there isn't one, where uh, there was, there was a, 
entrepreneur podcast that I was listening to where they made the like where you try to niche yourself down to something that makes it so that you are basic effectively a monopoly in this incredibly specific niche. So this guy's thing was, um, you know, you can be a business podcast or you can be a business podcast that does interviews with entrepreneurs that are successful, right? You get so unbelievably specific that no one else is doing that. And therefore you are the best at that one thing. And also happenstance wise, you have a monopoly on that thing immediately. Um, and that's generally kind of how business people work. The ones that kind of come in late and are just going to try to copy what's already in the industry and stuff like that, they're going to have issues and they're probably going to be a little bit more similar to what they're talking about where marginal cost equals margin revenue. But generally people try to create monopolies. And even, uh, when you compare how firms actually set their price, uh, there is no difference with how much money they're making when you compare the monopoly versus the, uh, the competitive, uh, industry because if they're not making money they can't stay in business um is the pretty obvious kind of takeaway from that so th that's kind of supply and demand and, and how that works uh, he also highlights the way in which the neoclassical school cover money in debt in that they don't um the way money works in neoclassical thinking and also austrian uh but he mainly was focusing on neoclassical he touches on a couple of the other schools at the very end of the book, uh, the way money works is an extra commodity that is imposed on the economy afterwards and therefore explains why there never seems to be any concern over debt or why their desire to go back to the gold standard is always uh, seen as the ultimate solution. It is unclear at this juncture what exactly the nature of money is and what forms it can take, but I believe that after reading this book that these, there are, is potential outside the obsession over commodity money, though I will add the caveat that a bounding mechanic like a limit of printing of said money a bounding mechanic to limit the printing of said money will need to be in place somewhere in the system. The advantage that commodity money and debt money has is that there is a bounding system inherently built in. In commodity money, there's only so much gold, and to get more gold coins in circulation, you have to go mine that somewhere. That takes time, that takes money, uh, you have to mint them, all that stuff. There's slowdown mechanics that make it so you can't impulsively print. Uh, with debt, that's not so... Basically, eventually you run out of people to... Uh, that are willing to take on loans is basically how the debt thing works. And it's not really bounded in all honesty, but in, in a sense, it has a limit. Um, if this limit does not exist, hyperinflation will occur. Um, so yeah, that's something that I found very interesting is, is this idea of the money and debt and how all that works. I think, uh, getting a better understanding of, of a debt and a I think there's a lot of potential in a new monetary type uh, policy and, and thought and how money, what money is and how money works. Uh, I think there's a lot of potential in that field. I don't exactly know what it's going to take and I, I need to do more research on it, but it is something that I definitely find interesting. <clears throat> uh, Keen makes a good point when discussing, oh, uh, this is just me ragging on uh, the Austrian economics and libertarians again because uh, I like to do that from time to time. Uh, and Keen at the very end of the book makes a good point of this, uh, basically talking about uh, the Austrians and how they have this weird way of viewing the world. Uh, the last chapter basically goes into the different um, economic schools of thought that are alternatives in neoclassical and their ups and their their positives and negatives, and uh, his hope for the future of creating a economics for the 21st century. Uh, so 
Uh, Keene makes a good point when discussing the evolutionary economics uh, to the point of Murray Rothbard and the Austrians about the role of the state in the economy. They believe effectively that the free hand of Adam Smith uh, that left its own devices, the economy will grow and evolve on its own, which to extent is true. Uh, they, of course, do not give the same treatment to governments or the state, uh, which they pretend is an alien force that magically showed up one day and was imposed on us instead of organically, uh, an organic rev evolutionary process that grew and changed with the times as we created more uh, advanced and sophisticated uh, civic systems and institutions and administrative states. Sometimes it can be overbearing, sometimes it gets excessive. Yes, yes, obviously true, all of that is true, but at the end of the day, it was something that we chose to do and was, there's always going to be outside forces that are, are trying to impose their will and, and there's always like a power dynamic, a power game that's going on. But there's also, to say that there's no net benefit from government and the various uh, things that it does isn't true. Yes, government can be dis dysfunctional and not work properly. That is obviously true, it's been shown to be true throughout the entire world, but they also are functional and do uh, provide services and stability and an economic and legal system in which to have an economy and without that structure, uh, it doesn't really work. The best, the way I always like to think about the government is they effectively, like if you have like beans that are trying to vine up or cucumbers or something, vine up a uh, trellis the, the trellis is the government, and the the beans in the vine are the economy. And you can't eat the trellis, you can't do anything, but without the trellis, the beans wouldn't be able to grow and produce and be as uh, bear as much fruit as if that trellis wasn't there. And then it's just on the ground, the animals can get at it really easily. It And I, I feel like um, the Austrian and Libertarian way of thinking about this is they're like, oh, let's just remove the trellis and act like that's not going to have any effect on the system. Or even worse is they act like, oh, we'll remove the trellis and replace it with something that is exactly a trellis. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I just thought it was a clean, succinct way to explain the peculiar thinking that Austrian economists have. Uh, it's specifically Murray Rothbard to a certain extent. Uh, though Keen makes a good point about them that they have highlighted the role of entrepreneurship in the economy more than any other economic uh, school. So that's that's a very interesting thing, and it's something that needs to be considered. Uh, continuing on through the book, uh, Keynes does a good job showing how the uh, economics hate using dynamic models, is what I touched on before, uh, which since the uh, world and the economy, economic choices we make aren't all done at one singular moment in time. Static modeling misses many of the effects that dynamic modeling does, and due to the amount of factors in the market economy uh, that dictate the choices people make on a daily basis, the economy is best described using chaos theory than any other model that currently exists, uh, though this theory has yet to be applied to economics in any meaningful way. Um, sort of. There are some people that have done some uh, chaos economic modeling, but it's also very hard because the... They, they made a good point where if you basically the way you can model stuff and the way emergent behavior and stuff diverges so hardcore from certain things is a model that has an error uh that is like uh one to the like negative 14th amount of decimal points uh will have like within like 50 cycles or something like that will have an error that's like a thousand times uh that that's 
off by like a thousand times and therefore the model is completely junk and so and if you just if that cycle time is like a day you're talking like two months and the model's junk so it's it, that's one of the things that makes modeling this kind of emergent behavior and, and all these different things really hard um and so i don't exactly know what that means for the long term if it's better to just kind of try to model stuff via thought experiments and kind of going with your gut more than trying to mathematically prove something out because it's not something that is going to stay uh, static and dynamic and you're not working with uh, defined principles, right? You're not working with, uh, um, you know, masses and weights that, you know, if, if something's 50 pounds and it needs to support, this thing needs to support this for 50 pounds for X amount of year, like there's certain things in engineering and mathematics and stuff like that, that you can factor for, even if there are a lot of opposing factors and things you're trying to balance out, you can factor for a lot of that stuff. Uh, where in economics, because you're dealing with people and their human tendencies and human actions, and uh, they're free to basically do what they want, um, it's not like not going to. There's more variables there than can possibly be calculated. Is basically what I'm getting into. Uh, so, to kind of get into some final points here. Uh, uh, so the book does mainly center around neoclassical economics and the mistakes they make and not so much the what direction economics should go in, uh, though he does provide a couple options at the very end, the last chapter like I talked about. Uh, being that this book is called Debunking Economics, it certainly fits the bill, but some of the chapters can be uh, into the we a bit into the weeds. Uh, so if, if you like really technical stuff, you're going to love this, but it had, did make my eyes glaze over a couple of times, and he even kind of gives you a warning about that, you know, it's just kind of the nature of some of the stuff. He's got to talk about something really specific that neoclassical economic people do that's like a technical thing. Like, you're just going to have to dive into that. Uh, it was certainly an enlightening read, but for someone who was already outside the neoclassical way of thinking, economics is more a book of dialectical and rhetorical, uh, and rhetorical tools to use against neoclassical econo uh, economists than an expansion of the way uh, of my way an expansion on the way I think about the economy. And that's not exactly true because all the stuff that I listed previously is ways that I kind of, uh, new ways of me thinking about the economy and structuring and uh, potential uh, ways of analyzing the economy that I will be looking into into the future. But be, that being said, um, it's, you get more out of, uh, if you're looking for ways to address neoclassical um economic talking points this is more what the book was directed at than the things that i necessarily got out of it you know it was great that i was able to get those things out of it but that wasn't the reason the book was written uh though there were still nuggets in there that did help me in this regard to as i said earlier um i've always studied economics for fun and primarily focused on the philosophical philosophical arguments and foundations of how the economy should operate over the more te technical and mathematical stuff not that i couldn't do that stuff because i am an I do have degrees in engineering, so I've definitely taken the uh, requisite math that is required for these kind of things. Uh, but if your foundation isn't square, the theory will eventually collapse. But Keen provided some ideas and tools throughout the book that I might try giving a shot, try and move some of these ideas uh, to model and see what happens. I was unfamiliar with how mo uh, to model economics 
as it was something I had never looked into. While this book isn't an introduction to economic modeling, it might have uh, leave you with enough tidbits and resources to help you, uh, for you to try your hand at it. And uh, it's something that I'm definitely going to be looking into uh, trying and seeing what, what happens. Uh, new, due to not being up on neoclassical economic jargon, some of the terms were uh, that were throughout the book... Uh, some of the terms throughout the book got kind of confusing and... Uh, I had a hard time kind of keeping them straight in my head because there was a lot of terms that kind of got introduced over a short period of time, uh, which is just kind of how it happens. And it's just like a dense book. It's it's hard to read more than one chapter at a time because there's a lot to process within that chapter. Uh, Keen does give a definition of the term before delving into the technical stuff, but if you're super used, if you aren't super used to uh, terminology like margin, uh, marginal cost over marginal uh, utility, things like that, and how that interacts with the supply demand curve, then some of the parts will be tougher to read uh, than somebody who has a background in this stuff. Uh, certainly doesn't make it unreadable, but it is certainly not an introductory book. Uh, though he said it was kind of supposed to be. I don't know. I, it's kind of up to you whether or not you feel like you're up to reading that kind of stuff. I didn't think it was too bad, but, you know, it's... You're not reading, like, a fantasy book, which is, you know, generally a little bit easier to read. That's just kind of how it is. You're not going to, it's not going to be a page turner, you know? Well, I, to be honest, this was a, for it being what it was, which is a 400 page economics book. Um, I read this really quickly. So in that regard, it's kind of a page turner, but, uh, it's kind of, it really depends on your interest. Uh, overall, if you're interested in economics in any way, I highly recommend this book. Um, so that's kind of my little, uh, spiel and kind of concludes what I wanted to talk about today. So, uh, thank you, everybody who is listening. Um, you can find me on uh, BitChute and YouTube and uh, Podbean. That's where I post all of these. So uh, go over there, listen to them. Uh, let me think. Let me know what you think, and uh, hopefully you guys have a good day. Goodbye.